it's a very interesting place to be sitting and looking because if you if you forget about you know the the roads and the streets around you and the swimming pool and the other structures it's very easy to imagine yourself back into Sydney before 1788 when the Holocaust began. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Jack Malcolm. I'm with Jackie Troy and we're sitting down in Victoria Park, one of the biggest green spaces in the Ultimo Broadway area. The park is plonked on the skirts of a busy intersection that forks one way off towards Newtown, Annandale another, and back down George Street towards the Sydney CBD. It's also situated between two busy university campuses, UTS down the road, and the University of Sydney, just off the back of the park, where Jackie is the Director of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Research. As we're sitting down, there are bodies scattered everywhere across the stretches of grass, people either sitting or lying down, others trotting along the paths that weave throughout the park to meet at the middle, a few with towels over their shoulders heading towards the swimming pool. But Jackie notes... While thousands must make their way through this space day in, day out, very few know that this area used to be a kangaroo ground. Where we're sitting now, looking down the hill to UTS and back up the hill towards Sydney University, forms part of what would have been a very long track that went way up behind Sydney University up into where we are. And the kangaroo, when they were to be harvested for a a big kangaroo hunt, people would light fires and um, drive the kangaroo with the fire and the smoke up the hill and all around this hill you'd have expert marksmen with their long kangaroo spears halved in their woomera that they could throw at huge speeds. I've watched slow motion film of a kangaroo spear being thrown and these can be metres long beautifully handmade all shaped over a fire to straighten them out of hardwood and the ends sharpened to a very hard point and as they're thrown they go right through the body of the kangaroo and they disable the kangaroo because overall the idea of these big spears was to stop the animal being able to get away so even if they got into the scrub this long spear through the body would stop it from hopping Um, these kangaroo would be panicking they'd be galloping you know like kangaroo do bounding across this um, big open area here heading straight towards people and imagine throwing spears with smoke and animals coming backwards and forwards past you at high speed because and the sound of the kangaroo booming as it as its tail hits the ground you know and their feet they make so much noise as that when they're really going fast and of course there'd be a huge amount of energy and life and people shouting and people involved in this you know really adrenaline rising um energy sapping kind of exercise um what brought them on like why did they just as we might now get together around something like a football match or a cricket match or or just to have family picnics um people would hold these big events uh around kangaroo drives to celebrate a moment a particularly important moment in community time
In the city of Sydney, there are more than 400 parks and open spaces, offering more than 188 hectares of natural respite. But these places we go to, to break away from the concrete jungles that tower over us, are clear reminders that we have buried our histories. I'm just looking around. I'm trying to see if there is any kangaroo grass. There's... mm... Oh, yes. Do you see behind you there? The one that looks like a kangaroo paw? That's native grass. Actually, the native grasses look like the feet or the paws of the kangaroo. Yeah, the hands. Yeah. Kind of buried beneath the other other types of lawns. It really is very much buried beneath the other types of lawn. The shape of the land, Jackie explains, isn't that different from what it would have been before the invasion. The expanses of grass, a few scattered trees with shrubbery thickening towards the park's edges, tracks instead of pathways connecting to other tracks that would stretch all the way to Parramatta and even the Hawkesbury. But it's the face of the land that is completely different. Unruly grasses and shrubs that dominated this space for tens of thousands of years have been paved over by introduced species and foliage. And while you can still see pockets of native species squeezing through, like the kangaroo grasses, the area is now defined by its neatness. From the carefully placed flower beds and trimmed hedges skirting along the swimming pool entrance, to the exotic trees that sweep over the park centre, everything is manicured within an inch of its life. Ironically, with many of the species being incompatible with the Australian climate, as they require excessive amounts of water and attention. Victoria Park, however, isn't the only green space kempt to this extent in the Sydney area. So today, in part two of our series looking at the classism of the green movement, we're asking, are our tightly managed green spaces just another reminder of colonisation. Gardens are so interesting because gardens, are, they're basically a luxury. A lawn is never just grass, but it's about symbol as well. Peter McNeil is a design historian from the University of Technology, Sydney. And Peter says, while you might think it's the flowers, the carefully trimmed hedges, or the sweeping tree canopies that are the most impressive part of the garden, historically, it's the lawn that's been the prized feature. Where did this idea of the lawn come from? Oh, it's so hot-wired in, into us. It goes back into so many traditions both in the Arabic world and the Judeo-Christian world. But if you think about the desert and the oasis with magical water tributaries flowing into this small piece of green, that's your green lawn. And that gets picked up and used in medieval Christian culture. It's the basis of the monastery. It's the place of the Garden of Love. It's where the maiden receives her lover. It's all over medieval culture. When did it go from this symbol of beauty to something that trickles into into later cultures? Yes. Why do we have the lawn everywhere? Well, 
it almost had to happen because by the 18th century, you have people making whole new landscape gardens. You know, this um, famous designer, Capability Brown, actually moved whole villages and it became very fashionable to have big expanses of grass, animals there as well, that almost look like landscape paintings. Then by the 19th century, gardening becomes very democratic, almost a duty. The British royal family have their children depicted doing gardening. It becomes almost built into the psyche of people all around the world. And that's why I actually quite love arriving in Los Angeles and seeing those perfect emerald lawns. That's what I call the Housewives of Beverly Hills. There have been TV shows done about Sydney, which claim that, you know, Rose Bay, Vaucluse, Point Piper are like the Housewives of Beverly Hills as well. It's where you have manicured lawns running right down to the street verge. Very hard to pull off, have to be clipped all the time, have to be very closely managed. I call it also the tidy town syndrome, that everything has to be clipped within an inch of its life. Kind of emblematic of a time. Yeah, of a kind of idea of tidy town and a tidy mind. And in 50s culture, a lot of advertising of products was actually done by spreading them out on the lawn. You see it in 70s advertising as well, which is actually slightly bizarre. Why put products on lawns? Products? Everything from washing powder to plastic chairs to to women's clothes. Lined on the lawn. Lined up on the lawn. It's completely bizarre. As if to evoke some sort of, well, this product is of this particular status, of this stature. I think to invoke the utopia, the future, and also to link it to to kind of perfection. And also about the kind of post-war American dream, you know, the green lawn stretching forever. Think about the way that the White House is often configured with the Great Lawn. Think about Parliament House in Canberra, that great big enormous lawn, which is meant to be symbolic of uh, suburban lifestyle in Australia, but who knows what it costs to maintain that lawn. That lawn is a very good example of how you're making a kind of decorative statement. These ideals around the tidiness of the lawn, Peter says, were only further reinforced when technologies were introduced to keep them trim, namely the lawnmower. The lawnmower is invented by someone from the textile industry who worked in a cotton mill who actually looked at the way they sheared off the base of a cotton cloth and then transferred that into that kind of cylindrical, circular lawnmower that you see from old movies. That's a late 18th century invention. And then they were drawn by horses for big estates. The horses actually had to wear leather shoes so they didn't touch the lawn or damage the lawn. So, you know, you still see all this stuff about the perfectly smooth lawn. It's played out in bowling clubs, you know, sporting activities. But the way you manage a lawn before that, you had to cut it by hand with a scythe, you know, like a great big blade shaped like a crescent, which you see in a lot of images of medieval illuminations. So there's this occupation, I guess, lost over the course of history where people would manually go out and cut the grass with this Mm. big, big scythe. Well, it's been revived, actually, in places like the UK where there's the revival of the meadow garden. And what's that? Uh, It's where you don't use pesticides and where you allow the natural flowers, bees, insects, and also the grass to grow quite high, but has to be cut at a certain point to get too long. And if you don't use a lawnmower and if you don't use pesticides, you get this beautiful kind of... um, organic environment, which is absolutely gorgeous. So basically a wild garden. I guess it's a borrowed tradition, just another example thereof, right, in which we kind of hearken to some of our larger Western counterparts and have taken trends and then pocketed them and used them here in Australia. Yes, yes. and it's, uh, it's also connected with 
the Australian obsession with controlling the landscape because in many cases Australian landscapes don't lend themselves easily to this kind of gardening or horticultural activity. So you could actually see it as a kind of attempt to wrest control of this landscape that didn't make sense. You know, there's been a lot of work done on the, on the picket fence and the, the small suburban lot and the way this enclosed Indigenous land could be controlled. This false narrative that the landscape before the invasion was out of control, Jackie says carries on today. But here, in Victoria Park, there were natural systems in place that kept this area functional and vibrant. The kangaroo are very good at actually keeping areas almost bowling green-like, you know. So if you see areas that are grazed out now that are on pastoral properties or um, in national parks where kangaroo are still in large numbers, you'll, you'll see quite well, if you like, well-kept <laughs> areas of grassland like this. The nature's trees. Lawnmower. Nature's lawnmowers, that's right. The problem with lawn ecosystems is not only are they a heavily controlled environment, they're also an overly pampered one. Penny Allen, landscape architect from the University of Technology Sydney, says, like any ecosystem, they require the basics, food, water and air. But the issue with lawns stems from the way we manage them. We mow them, we fertilise them till they're bright green and we water them more often than we need to. The more you water them, the less resilient the lawn becomes. So would you say that the lawn is an inherently unsustainable ecosystem? No. (laughs) And why not? Well, I'm a little bit confused or puzzled about the way people are so focused on sustainable landscapes when, for me, as a landscape architect, all landscapes are relatively sustainable relative to... Uh, the urban environment because the things that are least sustainable are buildings and actually landscapes in an urban environment help to sustain the balance. Trees lined along a busy inner city street or a swathe of turf rolled out to make a metropolitan park, even if watered excessively or too often trimmed, still provide benefits. They freshen the air in concrete jungles choked with exhaust fumes. They cool cities capturing the heat that comes with having heavy structures nested side by side. And they also help us mentally to detach and engage in the natural environment. But Peter McNeil argues, our pre-existing ideas of how our green spaces should look, how tall our lawns and grasses should grow, have become so deeply embedded that as we sustain these ecosystems, even in ways that don't make any ecological sense... That's still better than disorder. I've had big arguments in the block of flats where I live about how often we should cut the lawn. The minute you cut the lawn, you're killing a lot of insects, and I actually think it's very attractive when it's growing a bit. But, you know, most of the building will say, no, 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 we don't look managed if we're not cutting it. So it's, it's you know, this obsessive kind of use of labour, just as we also might cut our hair or how often we clean the house or, or clean the car or clean the windows. It's kind of um, slightly obsessional as well. It's what I call Old Australia. And what is Old Australia? Old Australia is kind of the world described by Patrick White. 
of um, obsessional values and harsh judgments and conformity. What do you make, even with this particular space we're talking about, this idea of neatness that comes with a lot of green spaces around and even the idea of the lawn, something that is super tended to, do you think that that's something that we can detach ourselves from today? I would love to see this place go back to the Gadigal having the capacity to decide themselves what this area should look like and have um, something more of what it would have been like originally with a bit a bit less manicured but nevertheless extremely beautiful probably way more beautiful than this over-designed space we're sitting in now um, I think we all long for some wildness in our lives and the Aboriginal community everywhere I go every community I speak to people talk about going bush and I think that more non-Aboriginal people need to be able to go bush and you should still be able to go bush in your own city we have got Fortunately, in Sydney, a whole lot of bushland areas, but a lot of it is very managed and manicured. I think that's, it's not meant to be like this. Um, kangaroo can certainly graze grass down to a beautiful bowling green look, but it wouldn't all be like that, you know. And I think we need to, we need, our wild hearts need to be able to run wild in wild country. I can imagine under these trees the kangaroo lying and um, you know, lazily scratching themselves and sort of waiting for the next hunt and uh, <laughs> without thinking about it too much. And, uh, so, yeah, I think it's, it's still a place that, for me, is a piece of um, open Gadigal country with the sort of light trees around the edges that evokes the feeling of... Um, love and care that was invested for tens of thousands of years in this country before it was stolen from its people. Fortunately, its people were not stolen from the country and we say that um, country owns us, we don't own country. So you can never actually take Aboriginal land from Aboriginal people because the land always owns its people and there are Gadigal people here who still traverse this park and live in and around all this area and um, still care for it and love it the way they always have. They just can't, they don't have agency in managing it in the way that it would be nice to see. Maybe into the future there may be a Gadigal land management plan for this whole area that's what's left of the kangaroo ground. I never knew before. Do you think that a lot of people don't know? I'm sure that a lot of people don't know. Um, Even people who are really switched on to the fact that Australia is an Aboriginal landscape and up in the Torres Straits of course it's a Torres Strait Islander landscape and all around the edges around the waters we have our island people, the Tiwi, all around my my own people I'm connected to from the snowy mountains in the high country to snow country, Narragoo, but down on the coast there are all these people who are connected to all sorts of islands that are off the coast as well so there's not a part of Australia that isn't that doesn't have a rich Aboriginal story that's still being told and still being understood by the Aboriginal communities that are connected with them or live live in these landscapes but most Australians just walk around especially in cities like this without, I think, any sense of the Aboriginal space that they're on.
Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in the 2SER studios in Sydney, on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on iTunes. Just search for Think Sustainability. The next instalment in our series, looking at the classism of living green, will be the whitewashing of the conservation movement. That's in a couple of weeks. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company. Thanks for your company.